This podcast is pre-recorded. Pre-recorded. How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. No, I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show podcast, episode 64. Ooh, making progress. What What are we making progress towards? I don't know. The end of our lives. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and on that note, dark, yeah. well, this is our third consecutive pre-record and yeah, as yeah. promised before we went into the pre-records we were going to have a new guest every episode jake that's right so who's our new guest this week this week on the show we got zachary k and i'm zach how's it going guys <laughs> Man, that was a real... oh you were waiting on that one i was in. waiting i was kind of sitting there just like i know exactly what i'm gonna yeah, yeah. no that's cool how you doing zach <laughs> yeah, not to too the bad cinema Sideshow podcast oh thank you very much thanks for having me i'm really looking forward to it i love how we have a season two cast like we brought basically in, we had yeah. our first year we had a couple of people i think we had three guests four guests i think mm. four yeah and the then we brought three in like the first 10 episodes and they were like <laughs> dude all the characters from first season are boring now we got to bring new people in <laughs> well we did bring jack on technically That's so <laughs> what who was it that you had on for this season then um, well we've, we've had uh, perry watson and stephen clark yeah. in the last two episodes right yeah. okay yeah so yeah. different range of creative mediums and you actually bring a totally new creative medium to our podcast oh okay well um being uh particularly it ties in a lot with the film of the week which is funny like i said mm. this before the show started each of our guests have picked a film we let we normally like letting our guests pick the films and i've kind of figured out that that generally means like it says a lot about the person when the episode they pick because right. I, I there's no way i would have ever watched this movie without this recommendation mm. i think or at least mm. not in the immediate future it's funny that you say that, actually, because um, I actually got introduced to... I, I assume we don't actually give away what the film of the week is just yet. Just, oh, it's, on, it's on the title, so... You know what? That's fair enough. Our well, listeners know, at least. But we yeah. tend to avoid too much discussion about it. All right, in the first all right. Half I'll, the I'll hold off then. I'll hold mm, off yeah. on, no worries. on this little tidbit. Okay. okay but like how it. do you know us, Zach? Um, we so, just find you on the, did we just find you on the street? We just brought you in? and uh, More or less, yeah. I was just kind of <laughs> decrepit. I had like one shoe on and one sock that didn't match. They were on opposite feet. It just didn't really make sense. We really needed to find a third guest. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that was just like, have you seen a movie before? No, I haven't. Bring him in. We're just doing it. Um, nah, it was so... Uh, I met Jake through a mutual friend of ours, uh, mm. Michaela Innes, I believe. Is that even that's her last name? I believe name? so, yeah. Um, and we... I was doing a show with her a long time ago, so in my little musical theatre sort of stint. Because mm, that's that's sort of your predominant field, musical yes, theatre. Yes, yes. Oh, theatre, period. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like, just all that arty sort of stuff, a lot of singing, a lot of acting, that sort of thing. Um, we were doing a production of, of Annie up in Kalamunda, mm. and she mentioned to me one day just, hey, um, I'm doing this film with this guy named Jake, and Ooh. we're looking for a, a new guy to play the male lead. So I just went, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll come in, send me the materials, and I'll audition for it. And then one thing led to another, and now I'm the star of his first feature film. I was, I was about to say, what a jump. Like, to be like, you didn't even do any short film stuff before this, right? No, I had zero film experience just before that. It was in a feature. Yeah, it was all theatre <laughs> stuff, and then all of a sudden it was like, bang. Yeah, so you don't have to be perfect on the first run because... You're not watching in front of a live audience, so yeah. Mm. yeah. No, I, 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 it takes to take. What's mm. that transition like between theatre to screen? It was quite. I I noticed it quite a bit when on our first time 
filming. Mm. I can't. The scene that we did first can't actually come. I think it might have been. I the, think it was in the bed. It was well, the we, bedroom. We did scenes. your voiceover first. Yeah. Oh, we did the uh, the voiceover first, and then we did um the actual when there was a video element. It was the bedroom scenes where it's just you know scrolling through phones mm. and saying stuff just randomly, just like you would in a bedroom when you're procrastinating. Mm. Um, and the biggest transition I noticed was. When you're doing stuff in theatre, a lot of the acting, it's it's big acting because you're trying to get the person who's like right down the end of the hall to see what you're doing. Yeah. Whereas on this one, the camera's, you know, right in your face. And so it's a lot more subtle. It's a lot of smaller movements. Like when you're on stage, no one's going to notice if your eye twitches. But when you're on screen and when you're yeah. being filmed, it's very much like, oh, if your eye twitches, that's got to be intentional. And if it's not intentional, we've got to cut and start the whole shoot again. So get it right the first time pretty crazy right <laughs> yeah i think it's um it's really interesting trying to do that transition from both ends of the spectrum for the actor and the director because it's often with theater actors predominantly you have to tend to dial back a lot of their emotions mm. simply because like you said you have to do it so the person at the back can see what you're expressing so mm. sort of subtle notions don't exist so um and Definitely in like the sort of micro-budget film industry, a lot of the people, it's sort of a cross-section. Very rarely you actually have an actor that's solely based in the screen medium right, at yeah. our level. Um, so it's really interesting to learn. I think it's growing for both sides because like, mm. it mm. helps you get depth in your like new field that you're now mm. discovering. And for a director, it helps them learn to communicate, mm. I think, for sure. Well, I think in the case of Disconnected, it really quite worked out because obviously you auditioned... And that's how I met you was actually just up the hallway here, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. We did the audition, which is funny. And then the other side of the hallway, we did the DVD commentary. Mm. So we're just all Ooh. over the place here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, in regards to that audition, and I remember very similar to sort of how you ended up playing it in the film because I remember being like, oh, that's it. That's our, that's our Chris. And I think that sort of theatrical element works because it is a very there's not a lot of dialogue in those scenes in the bedroom where you, you have to react to something on a phone or mm. and it is sort of challenging to throw you on your first day being like all right you got to do very little dialogue today mm. you got a lot of visual acting so i think it actually works that there is sort of that extra expression that i think you definitely toned down from what you would have to do on a stage but there was still enough in there so it's like we're still communicating to the audience i still know what you're thinking yeah. without having to say it out loud and i think I would say about half our casts were in a similar mode. And mm. I, know, well, I know... I know Michaela, she comes mm. from a theatre background as well. And I, Stephen was the same. Like, yeah. he like he was studying film at the time, but he didn't actually... Before that, he was mostly stage stuff as well. We actually went to the same high school. So we knew a lot of each other's, like, little habits and what our mm -hmm. best bits were, what we were best at, what our strengths were weaknesses and that sort of thing so sort of help you guys bounce off each other yeah yeah especially day. it's um also uh how steven ended up being cast was just yeah, because i knew yeah. him beforehand because you hadn't actually met him until i met him the day we started, we started filming yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which uh. is which is a dangerous thing to do as a director that's a but, risk but mm. i had um i had faith in my boy zach <laughs> to 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 cough up someone who would do uh do justice and i think he definitely Delivered probably mm. one of the, the most famous lines that come out of oh, famous yeah. Oh, yeah, that was rough. I, rem I remember um, <laughs> I saw your um, 
uh, you put up recently the um, was it the script, script, to, script yeah the script screen. to scene thing yeah. and I saw the first one you put up was the pool scene with Steven yeah which that uh, definitely had the most sort mm, of ab lib and yeah. changing in it which was interesting right. to watch but for um for any of the listeners that don't know we pretty much he got the script only a few days beforehand and didn't quite know all of it well he didn't quite know all of his lines mm. right away so we kind of got there. And he was more or less having to ad lib the entire scene, so <laughs> I imagine if you were looking at you that, you were pretty on note with your your lines. I've, I've watched that video, that script to screen one. You were pretty bang on with what you were saying. I mean, that just comes from you know when you're when you're doing stage stuff, you pretty much have to know the script inside and out mm, because yeah. there's no chance for everyone to just go, all right, cut, let's start again and see mm. what you do. You can't do that when you're doing stage stuff. You have to just roll with the punches, and if something goes wrong, you have to fix it and get back on track as soon as you can. Mm. yeah. And it's interesting because I do remember you being very uh, vigilant with your lines, but even watching that back, because it's been a while since I've sort of compared and contrast myself, and I was like, ah, there were some lines that I didn't even notice that you sort of uh, made more economical in a way. Like certain mm. lines, I was like, oh, that is written pretty weirdly. I'm glad that you changed it in the scenario yeah. so um around yeah. the board yeah and sometimes yeah. i mean is... we, we had a whole episode uh following the premiere that we talked about disconnected mm. quite a big episode seven there you go oh, very you really know. yeah we oh, had a really i was big... not aware of this okay so, so, well we, post... t- we talked about it a bit in the start of yeah one of the shows we did oh um, gotcha there was right. a good block i found it this. you dogged on me zach <laughs> <laughs> wait what what did no, i do because i found it you guys went out that night for drinks and stuff. Oh, yeah. right, yeah, That's after true. the premiere. Yeah. I remember that. What was it? There was you, me, and James. Uh, James yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I found it after. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> that was a good night. <laughs> that was, yeah, good, that good, was good fun. Sort of yeah. Allowed you to sort of take in what you had just watched too mm. and like, mm. de- like detox on that. And a bit of a debrief at Sneaky Tony's. That was good fun. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It was. Mm. Um, and I think it's really interesting because it's, for you, that must have been a really like kind of crazy catapulting experience that mm. not only are you thrusted into your first film project a feature film in which you're the lead like the male lead but then on top of that to have a premiere like yeah. you literally knocked out a lot of what some actors take quite a while to get to <laughs> in the first it's actually quite funny that because i was thinking about this earlier is that when it comes to the theater stuff which by comparison so i've done i only did what was about somewhere between eight months to a year working on Disconnected or something like that. Even for less me. than that, I would yeah, say. It was, like, it wasn't... I think it was three months between you getting cast and us rapping. Right, yeah. So it wasn't. I wasn't really involved in Disconnected for a, well, for, not for a long period Most of time. Of Shoot, for three quarters <laughs> of the project. But then, by comparison, when it came to like my like theatre career, mm-hmm. I've been doing that for oh, I don't know seven, eight years or something like mm-hmm. that. Never had a lead role. It's always wow, been okay. it's always been like ensemble, featured ensemble, mm-hmm. or like oh, I did one stint as like a sidekick. But <laughs> outside <laughs> like of that. that, it was like first ever lead role was the first feature film. And it was a very in- very interesting experience. Yeah. Mm. I mean, what's can you like go into maybe a bit of detail as what you found that was different between the two sort of like processes? I feel okay, so the big one that stood out pretty much immediately was the the responsibility on my part to be I'm the center of attention in this particular moment for most of uh, for most of the film mm, yeah. so I need to make sure that what I'm doing in terms of you know movement and speech and stuff it needs to be dead on it needs to be perfect for every single mm. moment because I can't really fade to the background and let 
whoever it is that is the lead okay, yeah. move mm. forward. So, like, for example, um, one of my first uh, roles in my theatre career, I did Lord of the Flies with my high yes. school. Yes. We've got to do that on the show. Mm. Never Lord seen it. Flies. Oh! Mm. Well... You'll be interested to know. I actually, I actually played Piggy. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, the uh, the short, That's fat, awesome. smart kid who uh, basically just gets thrown off a cliff at one point. Um, Aww, that was a fun. Piggy. That was a fun show oh, to do. They actually. ate him. Uh, no, they. Uh, Does he get crushed by a rock? I Isn't think the in, whole thing? in the film, I think they like throw a rock on his head or yeah, something like that yeah. and he passes out. I never actually watched the film, but in the he in legit the, gets crushed, if I recall. In the stage show, what they had me do was they had. They had like scaffolding set up at the back of the stage. Yeah. And then in one part of the scaffolding, there was a gap, like right next to the tallest part of the scaffolding. And the idea was there was a bunch of mats down there and it was probably like a three meter drop or something. And they literally had one guy just dangling me over the edge. Oh my God. Like, and then <laughs> when, the, mo- like when the moment came, like <laughs> he shoves me off, the lights go down and then they just see this massive... Oh. The slap sound, oh. and then it's just everyone staring over the edge of the scaffolding. The audience can't see anything because right, it's all okay. covered up. Yeah. yeah, but the idea is that I've literally just been thrown off of the scaffolding and into this gap, and yeah, it was uh. it was pretty wild. But it's actually that was the best option that we had because the other one that the art director was trying to get us to do, which the show director just shut down immediately, <laughs> was he wanted to set up a vine noose. Oh my goodness. Have me hooked up to that in a harness and literally be dangling there from the death of my character until the end of the show. Oh, which my would have God. been about 20 minutes of me just dangling there oh motionless. Oh my God. Jesus. Yeah. That's, that's a. Even just like thematically knowing the story, I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, man. It, it was dark. <laughs> Keep in mind, this was a high school production as oh well. Oh my we God. We had a. Oh, what was it? I want to depress the parents. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we had like a 13 year old as our youngest cast member and mm. it's like this this is too much yeah, that is yeah. too much but yeah the throwing off the scaffolding worked mm. that's crazy um, yeah. no uh, i think that's sort of an interesting like to have those sort of experiences and stories brought to the show because uh, you know in the last couple of weeks we've had uh you know like an aspiring director like ourselves with stephen clark and then mm. you know perry was a creative writer but more in the novelist sense that yep. it's really interesting to have each different arts section covered mm. um I think, cool. uh, I think... We it, did all right. Yeah. As producers. Oh, we, we bring right. Zach on for Birdman, surely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's a, that's a, we were actually just talking about Birdman. We literally were like, on the right here. Yeah, on the, on the way to, from like the car park to get here, just talking about how the first time I watched that. So I watched that uh, with my family the first time. Mm-hmm. And there's a very... So four people in my family, myself, brother, mum, dad, um, and... We all have a very different stance when it comes to films. Like, Dad is very much into action. Daniel's, uh, my brother, very much into his, like, uh, wartime stuff. I'm a big fan of, like, comedy and arty stuff. And then, I mean, Mum just kind of watches whatever. But um, (laughs) it's watching Birdman, I thought it was brilliant. Um, Brother and Dad absolutely hated it. They could not stand it. They thought it was literally just Michael Keaton walking around a building and then... (laughs) He ends up naked on the side of the road, and then like that's it. That's the whole movie. That's all they. That's all they cared about. I mean, even if um, that was all the movie was, I'll still be into it. Oh yeah, yeah. Michael Keaton, <laughs> Ed Norton's erection. Oh yes, <laughs> oh, Ed Norton. That's, he, he has. He does so well in that film. Yeah, oh, he's amazing. I yeah. really enjoyed him. But um, well casted film. Uh, yeah, but it just it just sparked such a debate. And actually, um, a similar thing happened. Uh, 
pretty much, I think it was three days after the Oscars uh, took place, we watched Parasite for yes. the first time. God. All four of us as a family. And well, that I divide's going to be interesting. Yeah, you know, oh, I thought <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Um, everyone else, they kind of like they saw the appeal of it. They weren't massive fans of it. Like they they did appreciate the uh, the twist that mm-hmm. took place, mm. but um. Yeah, I, I thought it was brilliant. I loved Parasite. Yeah, well, if you want to hear our thoughts on Parasite, you can check out episode... 57, I believe. 57? You, You've got this down pat on which numbers or what films. I yeah. don't have a job right now. That's all I have to do is memorize which movies we did on this show. <laughs> No, um, uh, and write scripts. But so yeah. you've talked about some of your theatre experiences. So what's what's next for you? Are you going to stick more with the theatre stuff for you? Um, well, at the moment, so I basically had a like kind of a minor epiphany would have been middle of last year, where mm-hmm. basically I I had, a, I had applied and auditioned for uh, WAPA, West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, mm. uh, twice at that point. Um, the second time I got through, like, got through some of their interview stages and um, and their second round auditions, and then I basically thought to myself, there are people out there that want this more than I do. Mm-hmm. Like, I very much enjoyed it as a hobby, theatre, so, like, I was still doing community shows and stuff like that. Like, I think most recently I did um, uh, Little Miss Sunshine, which is... Uh, it's a show. It's based off the uh, Steve Carell film. Oh yes, we all love that, that film. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the stage show was fantastic. Awesome. Um, yeah. Who'd you play in that? Uh, it was the. Um, Please uh, tell me Paul Dano. I was about character. to say, did you play Paul Dano? I can't. I, I haven't actually seen the film, so I don't know oh, who no. the cast are. It's basically. Did you play a colorblind? It was, it was no. It was Buddy Dean Gardner. It was the. Um, it was the dude who like announces the. Uh, pageant. Oh right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. And then like a couple side roles here and there, but um. That, that was good fun. and But basically what happened was I just thought to myself, there are people out there who want this more than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more than happy doing uh, doing it as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually, I'm very much into um, my sciences. So I'm actually, I'm enrolled at Curtin University. I'm in my third year of a coastal and marine science degree. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just, at the moment, I'm just putting more time into that. Maybe mm. in the future I'll get back into it. Yeah. But at the moment, it's most. I'm more focusing on, in terms of art stuff. Yeah. I'm more focusing on my career as a musician. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing a lot of like a uh, choral stuff, a lot of singing, that sort of thing. Yeah. And we actually had a fringe show. Uh, would have been just towards the end of January, mm-hmm. which was good fun. It was just in a church, massive choir. I think we did like an hour show, just a bunch of songs, all sorts of genres. So. Yeah, no, that's sweet. Yeah, I mean, it's good fun. At the end of the day, all arts are good arts mm-hmm. on this show. We are a, an art embraceive society here. <laughs> um, no, well, that's exactly right. And, you know, and it, and it goes to the point of um, it's it's great that you can have that. I mean, that epiphany, as you call it, that you know, oh, I I know my own dedication to this because mm. it's. I mean, we did Whiplash last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was sort of an interesting film to talk about in terms of uh, dedication to an art form. Uh, to ex- and you, I don't think you've seen it. No, you I haven't, haven't seen, seen Whiplash. Whiplash. I'll probably pick up a copy on the way home because nice, I've been nice. meaning to watch it. Because mm-hmm. um, that that uh, <laughs> that film has some things to say in terms of dedication to to a struggle with a yeah with glory. But um, mm. no, because you know I've I've come I've had like moments like that too where it's like you know what I would be. Very happy to have that self fulfillment doing making films and doing this film, but I don't 
need you know that extra thing i don't need to be famous in hollywood sort of thing mm. so it's it's always nice to see sort of people know how much they want to put into that and i love that mm. you're like yeah i'm doing this thing at school i'm doing this thing but i've also got this on the side and there's a lot of sort of the balancing maybe a year from now i'll be more back into this and then maybe a year i'll go back into this so yeah, yeah i do like the, the shifting mindset it's really interesting you had that sort of epiphany around six months ago because or like mid last year because not too long after we finished our undergrads i sort of had a very similar epiphany where it mm. was sort of like i mean i love doing this show and i love talking about film and critiquing film and discussing film and writing films and making films but um, you know, I, that's sort of where it came to my decision to move into like a master's of teaching to move into teaching high school uh, media because yeah. it's sort of like, I think I'd get more enjoyment out of that. I mean, we've, it's funny, we, you know, we had Stephen on last week and we we're talking about sort of some of the ins. Well, we didn't go too much into detail on the ins and outs of sort of how the industry functions and rotates, yeah. but. But he definitely had a perspective that's sort of ahead of a little bit of a wider scope than we're used to. So yeah. it's cool to have him talk about it. On Absolutely. The show. Um, and it, it's it in order to perceive that sort of uh, like really pursue that dream, you've got to give it, you've got to give it 110%. And, mm. and it's not, I, there's nothing wrong with being like, I love this stuff, but this is not where my career sits or at least right now it's not where it sits, you know, because yeah. The reality is, I mean, especially in, at least from what we know in the film industry, there's a certain cutthroat nature in, in our sort of, in just in Australia in general, because there's not that many slots for mm. filmmakers here um, in the sense that, or at least really successful ones, because there's not, uh, unfortunately, I mean, we've, you know, not to get too political, but we don't have like an arts minister in Australia. We <laughs> not, anymore. not anymore. Not <laughs> anymore. Um, so there's Oof. not a lot of like, well, that as much as Australian films when they come out can sometimes be really good. There's not a lot of love and a lot of the films mm -hmm. that you see, a lot of the features, they've got to be made with money out of your own pocket which you know mm. couldn't have a more yeah, yeah i know person. i was gonna say circular storytelling a film like disconnected wouldn't exist and being dvd if it wasn't for sort of the love that doesn't necessarily come from the cutthroat business side of things but just a sort of a singular love that is shared by i guess in the case of disconnected i'll say about 15 people mm. yeah like not a lot of people worked on it from start to finish mm. but you know, I think the collective love towards it made it get to the finish line. And I, and I always said it about Uzak, especially once you came on, that our shoot dates, and we didn't shoot, you know, one week straight. We shot whenever anyone was available. And yeah. once you came on in terms of helping us find locations, find additional actors <laughs> like Stephen Ozay, for example, um, and just shooting us right to the end of the finish line. And it is it is that level of dedication, but also without all the politics aside, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there sharing, you go. Um, circular. <laughs> sharing, I can't think of a better note to branch into our film of the week as we talk about circular love, mm. Zach's love for musical theatre. I feel mm -hmm. like this plays relatively right, into that, our yeah. film yeah. Of, of the week. So, Jake, what are we watching? This week we're watching Jersey Boys. Hear the real story? I'm the one you want to talk to, Tommy DeVito. If it wasn't for me, we all would have wound up with a bullet in our head. 
friends like that. You should change your name to Sinatra. I'm gonna be as big as Sinatra. I would love to introduce you to a new discovery of mine. Frankie Valley. Dream of wild. I heard them all, but I never heard a voice like Frankie Valley's. I know I need to write for this voice. Thank you. The world is gonna hear that voice. You want me to produce your songs? Find a name and a sound, and then we can make something happen. Tommy DeVito, Bob Gordio, Nick Mancy, and Frankie Castelluccio, later Frankie Valli, are part of a renowned band. Due to increasing popularity, they become victims of several mafia threats, gambling debts, and family disasters until their eventual rise to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh. This film was directed by Clint Eastwood. That's Which I did not know until I started watching the movie. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. So this is a very intriguing uh, choice, Zach, chosen mm. by you. Because mm. whenever we have guests on the show, we try and encourage them to, at least their first time, they pick the movies, with the exception of, I think, only Jack is probably the only one who's kind of been just At slotted. Point, yeah, yeah. Um, but he's kind of just interchangeable. Yeah. Just chuck uh, is him he in. even capable of choosing, making Oy. a decision? <laughs> <laughs> That's rough. That's very cool. mean. Um, no, we love Jack. Jack. Um, so, yeah, this is a really intriguing pick. Uh, do you want to go into first why you picked said film? So, I got introduced to this film by uh, my father, who was basically... So, he knew that I was kind of working into that whole musical theatre sort of industry. This is way back in... Actually, I think it was 2014 when it first came out. Yeah, there you go. Um, and he just said, hey, I reckon you really like this film. So, mm-hmm. I gave it a watch. Um, loved it, every minute of it. And ever since, Frankie Valli and The Four Seasons have been pretty, pretty much my all-time favourite band, like, mm-hmm. surpassing even The Cat Empire, which Whoa. probably says quite Glass a bit. for me Scandalous. on this yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've just, I've loved their music. I've listened to pretty much everything they've ever done. Um, and I've just loved the movie ever since and the musical as well that it's based on. See, it's interesting. Yeah, it, I, was, I was very intrigued in the sense that I always thought they were just called the Jersey Boys, but no, they're called the Four Seasons, mm. which was a bit of an epiphany that happened to me halfway through the film where I was like, I thought, I was like, when are they going to be called Jersey Boys? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, that's actually, um, that's I think like the whole Dark Knight superhero thing they're doing now. Yeah. Well, the reason that actually there is that sort of confusion is because the show that made, Arguably, the show that made them as famous as they are is the Jersey Boys Broadway musical. And so. Okay, so the Broadway musical came before the film. Yes, the Broadway musical was made in. Oh, far out. It probably would have been like the late 90s, early 2000s. I'm probably completely wrong. Back I'm in terrible the 90s. with my theatre history. Yeah. But um, yeah, the musical was made well before the show. It became. Sorry, well before the movie. Became quite popular. Um, and then Clint Eastwood picked it up and just went, yeah, I'm going to make this into a movie. And that's pretty much I've how it happened. always been hit or miss, as we've said on the podcast, with Clint Eastwood directing mm. films. Um, and Okay, so the uh, the Broadway musical was in 2005. Ah, okay, there we go. Ah, so, very nice. Quick. Uh, so 10 years later, this film was made. Mm. That just goes to show how popular the Broadway musical is because often it's – the other way around the movie gets made first and then the broadway musical or at least mm. there's not as it, like there's not as much crossover with that stuff very mm. few times well, do broadway adaptations work well on, i think on it's screen i think a lot of the time as well when it comes to turning a broadway musical into a movie it becomes this big major event like you look mm. back at things like Les Mis or even cats just recently Oof. it's this <laughs> it's this like yeah. okay is the film great it's very hit or miss. Like, I personally enjoyed the Les Mis film. I mean, a lot of people think Russell Crowe was tr- 
tragic in it, but you it know, was. like yeah. Gerard Butler was in Phantom. I'm still hurting. <laughs> it's funny when you were talking about him because Zeke's had this rant before on the mm-hmm. show, so I was yeah. like, oh no. Uh, okay, I see. Um, but Why yeah. do you get actors that can't? Say, and this is actually one of the biggest pros of this film straight off the bat. All four of the act, the the mm. quote Jersey Boys or the Four Seasons guys, mm. none of them are major actors. You check their. Uh, well, it's did, funny yeah. you bring that up because John Lloyd Young, the actor who plays Frankie Valley in the movie, is actually the actor that plays Frankie Valley in the Broadway show. I sort of was kind of getting that, particularly mm. when the credits hit and they do they do the Sherry song again. Yeah, um, I mean it's not a spoiler about the film; it's just yeah. the credits song. Yeah. But they sing in the movie. It, no it way. Almost yeah. feels, <laughs> it almost it felt Broadway in its presentation. Yeah, that last like that last number. So I was. I was actually thinking maybe, yeah, that that, that yeah. I'm surprised that it's just was... the one. Yeah, I thought that as well when I first found out, but it actually, looking back at it... could have all had musical theatre backgrounds. Yeah, though. probably. Yeah, I think, like, they all obviously, like, it's, it's, a, it's a musical. It's, it's, mm. a, it's a movie with a lot of songs that they're all singing a lot of the time. Um, so they all have a hist- some history in music, but the other three who play Tommy DeVito, Bob Gordio, and Nick Mancy... They are, I can't remember their backgrounds exactly, but essentially they're all just actors who sort of had that musical experience. And then I think in the casting, it was just, they just fit perfectly, which I honestly reckon the casting could not have been better mm. for yeah. this film. Like even even if you look at people who you wouldn't have guessed, so like, I don't know, a good example, uh, Christopher Walken for... Um, uh, What's his name? One of the fathers, yeah. Angelo Jip. Well, Jip. Jip. Yeah. Sorry. Jip. Um. Uh. Yeah. I thought. I thought that was very well cast because you look when you look at the um, uh, the Broadway show, the uh the man who plays Jip is very kind of just like, it's very just stereotyped, mm. you know, Godfather sort of character. Gotcha, gotcha. There's not really any defining trait. But then when you throw Christopher Walken in those shoes, it's like okay. Now it's kind of got some levity to it. There's a bit of a humidity to his yeah. performance as well. Yeah. It definitely helps with the marketing too. There's like you get mm. a big name behind a film, it's always yeah. going to be. Well, I think yeah. he's the top billing. On, if you go on Letterboxd, yeah. his first name that comes up. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. which is interesting because he's honestly he's not in the film a whole lot compared no, to no. the rest of the no, cast. I feel like he just walked on set wearing what he was always wearing half yeah. the time. <laughs> just a suit and then one day he walked in a robe. Just yeah. yeah, that's it. I got a watch in my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love him. God, uh, he's, he's he's just got like the way he talks. Like when yeah. you think of him in like Catch Me If You Can, and he's yeah, just, oh, like, he's yeah. so great in that film. But um, no, I I did I did note that as well. That I was very happy that a lot of the cast were, I don't want to say unknowns, but they definitely weren't any big. You know, they're not no, MCU I, I, stars. Yeah, so I think unknowns speak. is a is a fair, oh, a fair um mm. like judgment of them. Obviously, it's cool to get the guy who's on the Broadway musical, mm. and that I mean that like. The more I talk about this film, the more I'm like, oh man, I totally now I know why you really picked this film. <laughs> it's, it's such a reflective sort of experience bringing someone from mm. uh, musical theatre and stuff into the screen. And I, I think someone as experienced as Clint Eastwood is, is capable of sort of kind of converting him into that sort of cinematic mm. language that... Um, and I'm, I'm also a personal lover of Broadway. I love Broadway musicals. Um, but... Everything you they do on stage is is exaggeratory because mm, it's yeah. for a reason. Um, Especially in musical theatre, because like mm. like obviously when you just go from straight like play acting, mm. everything's big because you've got to reach the guy at the back. But 
when it comes to musical theatre, it's even bigger because it's supposed to be cartoonish. It's supposed to mm. be really over the top. Yeah, and I think what I like about at least how... And I've seen other films do. I want to talk a, bit, a little bit about that fourth war break that yes. constantly yes. happens yes. in yes. the film. Um, and a film that I actually talked about last year when we were on the show... American called Animals? The, uh, no, The Dirt. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, yep. Which was a Motley Crue biopic that did a very mm. similar uh, narrative device where the members of the crew would talk to the camera. And it doesn't work with the Motley Crue film. It actually works better in this film because of... I almost feel that it feels like a hybrid Broadway musical cinematic mm. experience, this film. Yeah. And the fourth wall break is a very tropic thing to happen in a, in a musical Broadway yeah. production because often characters do break that fourth wall and yeah. time freezes and they're talking to the camera almost. And, yeah. And I, I like how Clint has kind of not just tried to make a movie with a Broadway production, he sort of tried to bring the Broadway production to the movie. I think, is, yeah. Which is something like Les Mis, I think, fails at quite. Yeah, I see that because I think, well, when you look at Les Mis, because it's such an epic piece, it's kind of hard to translate to screen when it's looking like, so, for example, when you go into uh, a Broadway show to watch Les Mis, you're supposed to be taken aback by, you know, this massive sweeping just barricade yes. of things. But then, of course, when you watch the movie, because a lot of the time with film, you're kind of used to that sort of big sweepy thing, it loses that spectacle. Well, Les Mis is an orchestral sort of thing, like a like big yes. choir. Mm. Um, it's nothing. There's no props, really. They're just all dressed up in their characters and they just mm. go up and talk to the mics Pretty most much. of the time. Yeah. Or even with stuff like... um. When you look at the movie for Lamers again, you're expecting when they actually get to like that barricade moment where it's like you know the the big the big standoff, the big mm. war, if you will. It's you're expecting okay, it's 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 on screen. It's going to be big budget. We're going to see massive, just sweeping barricades all yeah. over the place, and it's like a pile of chairs in the street in a cul-de-sac. It's yeah. it's disappointing. <laughs> yes. is what it is. Right, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I think that this film keeps itself pretty grounded um, and is a, at least a different take on a musical biopic. They could have just run the Bohemian Rhapsody run, of, uh, but I feel like there's a little bit more uh, flavour and depth to this. And I always like how Eastwood always tries to, even with every film he does, he always tries to do something distinct to each film that he does, whether it's hit or miss. Um, like, I'm not a big fan of Sully, and we talked about The Mule last year, um, when that came out, mm. and but then there are films like uh, you know, um, like Unforgiven, which are like you know cinematic I still, I still masterpieces. Seen oh. And oh. I I do like the fourth break in this this because it does kind of offer that sort of olive branch to the mm. musical theatre roots that I think other musical adaptations to screen completely like neglect. I mean, we take the most contemporary example being Cats, where it's like they didn't feel like there was it would have. I would have enjoyed it way more had it been humans dressed up as cats yeah. rather than rather than well, whatever was... monstrosities they created in <laughs> yeah. CG. Yeah. Well, that was, that was my take when it goes back to what you were saying with how there's a certain level of like um, and this sense of awe on stage that you don't get in film because you're so used to this 2D perspective of all the what mm. we see in film today that it's almost less impressive when they try and emulate, uh, emulate what they do on stage on screen. And I got yeah. that sense with Cats where... You're right. I wish it was just people dressed up. I wish that the sets... There was some amazing, like, looking sets in that film, quotation marks. Hooper did have a good concept with... I like the idea that he was making these sets to scale so the humans would be, like, the size of cats in a room. 
Yeah, so but that's made... the thing. Like, they looked awesome, you know, lack for a better word, but I knew they were fake. Yes. Yeah. So while they can't really be fake on stage, so... What's yeah. another interesting thing um, that Jersey Boy's done, which I actually only noticed this uh, re-watching the film in the lead-up to this podcast, was that... So the entire first act of the movie... Um, before before they even sing Sherry, mm-hmm. which is you know the the big song that kind of sets the whole thing off, the yeah. big one. Yeah. So I think they only I think in the film Sherry doesn't actually come up until the end of the first act. I want to say it's probably like the the fifty minute to Ooh, hour yeah, mark or something like that. Way. It's a long time. But in the musical, because it's a it's a musical, so they've got to have songs pretty much the whole way out. That first act section is only like fifteen minutes. I want to say okay. in the show. So. In contrast to uh, making it a bit like losing the spectacle for going from Broadway to film, mm. you're actually given a lot more background when the film is made because, you know, they try to make a two and a half hour film in contrast to a 90 minute to two hour musical. Mm-hmm. So they really needed to like stretch out some of those moments. Where are they going to do that? They're going to do that right at the beginning where all that story is that isn't explored in the show. Yeah. So in the film, you have stuff like... Oh, like the jewelry store heist mm. in the beginning there, um, or even things just like uh, the police interrogation and that whole court scene. Well, it's just character building because you've got to yeah, exactly. you've got to somehow um, make the audience invest in about four people that we've never met before, assumably. Whereas in musicals, there's a little bit more allowance, I think, for character development. Um, I if one of the ones that comes to my mind is the beautiful musical, which is about mm. Carol King and. Yeah it's a very similar situation where it's like they need they need her songs as quick as possible so mm. the first song that she wrote it's like in mm. the first 20 minutes like 15 to 20 yeah. minutes so it's definitely if they ever made that into a film adaptation it would probably be mm. a lot longer down the track and i think if we take something like walk the line i don't think johnny mm. cash sings his first like song the whole way through he doesn't sing uh, false and Prison Blues until about at least 30 minutes into the film. Mm, yeah. It's a good build into it. It's also interesting because they still manage to strike that balance of there's still music in the film mm-hmm. leading up to that point, whether it's like, you know, breaking into a church to sing with the organ or uh, what else is there? Just bringing Frankie Valli up on stage for his first show in uh, whatever that bar was, where it's just the three uh, dudes on the stage in that trio. Yeah. Like there's still songs in the movie and it's still got that musical element to it. Mm-hmm. but you don't actually fully launch into the the four seasons music until probably halfway through the film. Yeah, I I don't know how I feel about that too actually to be honest. It I I I think the problem with at least the history of the four seasons and this is not a fault of Eastwood. I think this is just the fact that they went through a lot of changes and a lot of like there was a lot that happened before they got to the point that they got. And to, there's a lot of ground to cover, whereas... And it's tough, too, because when you're a group, too... Um, I mean, you look at something like like a more contemporary example with, like, Bohemian Rhapsody. They basically just went, oh, that one night Freddie walked in and he met the band, and then that's how they met the band. Whereas I think when it's an individual artist, there's a lot more time to develop that one person rather mm. than you have to develop four people and their dynamic and how they all work. And I think the first 40 to 50 minutes of this film up until actually the Sherry moment, I was often kind of confused sometimes. I, I kind of like lost track because, I mean, there were some of them were going into prison, some were going out of prison. Mm. And, I mean, they make that joke that it's like, oh, as I was going in, <laughs> yeah. he was coming out. Yeah, it's There's, a revolving door, like that whole basically, thing. Basically. Yeah. Um, and it's, basically, it's sort of like 
the film, I don't think, ironically, gets its wheels rolling. And I'm probably going to jump into a few bits of spoilers, but until yeah. the Joe Pesci scene. Like the oh, introduction yeah. to the yeah. Joe Pesci scene <laughs> is when Pesci. I feel like the mm. film starts to build its steam up and starts to yeah. feel a little bit more... Quick sidebar, that still blows my mind that that was actually Joe Pesci. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Joe Pesci is the man who found Bob Gordio and found... Joe Pesci is the reason that the Four Seasons exist, and that just blows my mind. Yeah, well, and yeah. it's kind of funny in the, the hindsight what happens yeah, to yeah. Um, DeVito's to, character. Yeah, Tommy DeVito. And he just up, basically becomes this... Like, assistant. Yeah, yeah the, like, Joe, Pesci, Joe Pesci's assistant. And I mm-hmm. just couldn't... I every, when, As soon as they were like, yeah, that's that's Joe Pesci, I just immediately, I just hard cut to watching The Irishman last year and seeing Pesci as this right. old man who's, like, so menacing. And, and, and this, he's kind of a bit of a stooge. Like, they kind of yeah, play him off as he's nothing more than It's fun to watch that's him in the background is, yeah. what, when the scene's gone on, sort of his, like, reactions and sort of... Yeah. yeah. He's <laughs> essentially, he's... DeVito's kind of stooge, which is ironic because Pesci's often in movies. We know him as this guy who's constantly in power, or he's this loose yeah. cannon that's mm. going to fire he's off. He's the and, head honcho, yeah, most of the time. Whereas in this one, he's just a little, he's yeah, just a okay. Can I say something? Okay, I'll shut up. I'll yeah. shut up. Yeah. Or he goes up to DeVito. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll get my five percent, or I won't. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> they, yeah. Had, they had to get the funny how. They had to get that in yeah. there. So yeah. like funny yeah. how. So it's, I, like. I sort of find it funny that it almost is like. DeVito's gangster mentality, at least what Eastwood's trying to say, I feel like is very much inspired by a real person, but it's not who Pesci is in real life, yeah. sort of thing. Right, yeah. Which sort of kind of... It's hard not to bleed into, like, I, like, think of his performance in, like, Goodfellas or something like that. It's, mm. like, how Scorsese turns this guy who's, like, a snap, crack pop kind of guy. I and- did say before Joe Pesci even showed up, I did say, this is totally just a musical Goodfellas. Yeah, I can see that. I can <laughs> yeah, see that. Yeah, is, yeah. It's definitely uh, there isn't there. It's kind of like yeah, gangsters a musical in a mm. in a way. But it's kind of yeah. funny to see like that. So, and I feel mm. up and prior to that point, I was sort of like okay, because they were switching band members pretty quickly too. Because like you said, it wasn't. Yeah. So originally, it consisted of a trio of just it was Tommy DeVito, the big gangster fella. Yeah. Um, the, uh, Nick Mancy. Uh, Nick Mancy, who's the bass player, and then it's either Nick or Tommy's brother, who's the third member of the trio. But then uh, that third member leaves. They bring Frankie on board, mm. and then they're thinking, "Shit!" And they hot we, potato yeah, in prison. We need right? a yeah. There's a bit of a hot potato in prison. But basically, once they're all back together, and they're all like uh, back, yeah, they're all back together. Mm. They've reunioned. I think I made up a word. Mm. Um, and then <laughs> basically. It's we need to find a fourth because trios are no longer a thing. Trios aren't popular anymore. We yeah. need a fourth guy, and we need someone who can write songs as well, so we can mm-hmm. get big. And then that's how Joe Pesci comes into play. He comes along. He finds Bob Gordio, who is, as Tommy says, this trifecta. He sings, he plays, and he writes songs. Mm-hmm. He's that fourth man. He writes Sherry, and then everything just goes nuts. Yeah, I think it's really funny though because. Um... They definitely, like, Eastwood always takes his time with his films and he definitely didn't want to skip to the Sherry moment. He wanted to really show that there was a, a struggle to get to that point. And mm. I think it it's necessary because it's the only way to kind of make DeVito's character at least even slightly redeemable mm. for how <laughs> arseholery he is for the rest of the film. It's interesting you bring up that whole, like, leading up to it and showing the struggle because it kind of mirrors something they do in the show, which they can't really translate to film because it just wouldn't work. Basically, they get to this moment where 
in the show, Bob Gordio, he's written Sherry. We all know it's Sherry that he's written, but they don't actually play the song for like another 10 minutes or so. And they literally just sit there. Every scene is just underscored by the, the, the dun, dun, dun. <laughs> just that bass line for like 10 minutes straight. And it gets to this point where... The uh, producer, Bob Crew, he just loses his shit and he goes, play the fucking song already, <laughs> like he does towards the end. Yeah, I was going to say they have that <clears throat> yeah. towards the end there, yeah. Um, and then finally it's just like, all right, we'll play the song, fine. We'll finally play the song. They draw it out for another five minutes and yeah. it keeps going like that and then they finally drop Sherry. It's it's interesting, yeah. It's interesting the way they kind of, they sort of translate that waiting to get up to the song just in a different way yeah yeah it's just a it's funny because like we talk a bit about how at the start there's a lot of shifting band members and how the name kind of changes throughout the story as well yeah was it the four lovers the four four romans whatever four romans yeah and what i thought this was sort of amounting to was that that thematically speaking we were seeing a story about identity and how it was sort of this ever-changing identity yes but it kind of ends up being more about masculinity more than anything yeah which totally explains to me now why clint eastwood directed this film Mm. but um i liked his little um appearance in the film he's on the telly Oh, very clever! I must have missed oh, that. Oh, I think I missed that. When it's was... the scene with um, when uh, I think it's, it's Bob Gordio. Mm. Um, he has, I think, sex oh, for the first time, yeah, and he's I watching the telly. Oh, yeah, it's the telly. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a cowboy film with. Yeah, okay, cool. I remember that. Oh, now, yeah. damn! I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I was it, thinking more of um, uh, Charles and Heston sort of. So that makes a bit more sense. I've now. probably watched this film like I don't know, 12, 20 times or something like that, and I've never actually made that connection before. Yeah, That's yeah. wild. Um, and I, I th- so Jake, what's your take from this film? What do you, what do you take um, from this? Can you give us a hot take? Yeah, I've been kind did of. Did you enjoy this? <laughs> did you enjoy this film? I did enjoy the film. Yeah, I had um, I did have a few issues with it though. Not like anything major or like detrimental to the film, because again, I was talking about how I was like, oh, I was kind of looking for a the identity arc, and we didn't really get that. So I mean, we we kind of do, but again, it's more about. Sort of the masculinity, like these people growing up. It's yeah, it's not necessarily about identity more so it is as it is just especially towards the end, the way Frankie Valley's kind of just grown up and gotten out of the neighborhood mm. and just escaped from that whole that, I, that terrible culture of, you know, the rich rule the, the, the Jersey. Poor. Yeah, Jersey and that, like, and, yeah, that whole Jersey mentality. But he doesn't yeah. really escape my thing is he doesn't really escape it because he still pays off DeVito's debt when he doesn't have to. Like that's the sort of uh, I, I suppose. I think that's I think more... And he, there's even a line where it's like, oh, you think I would just walk away? Well, you don't know what. Like, it's oh, yeah, oh, is it you're not from Jersey or yeah, something like exactly. that. Yeah, At the same time, though, it kind of that ties into, I think, more of a like, a like a brotherhood sort of... Like, you look out for the people who you're with. Yeah, I, I, I have my problems with particularly the last 20, I think, to 30 minutes of the film because it becomes very rushed. And I think... Um, there's not enough seeds, particularly the recovery that Valley goes after the loss of his daughter. Mm. Um, spoilers. So, um, yeah. oh, we already called spoilers. Okay, cool. Earlier, yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, also, it's a it's Oof. it's historical events. This all happened in real life. That's it's true. tricky. That's the problem with, um, particularly I have with biopics. If they don't focus on a particular part of a musician's life, they don't have to encompass a forty-year span. In this case, yeah, yeah, this is. Yeah, and I, I, to me, it, 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 it's a, a big negative for the film because it takes away from the the focal point. I think I liked that they kept up until about. Uh, I feel like the fallout should have almost come towards like that should have been it, 
and then they would have cut to the ending and I would have cut the whole daughter storyline out because although it did happen in real life, it doesn't have to occur in the film because it doesn't really, in my opinion, it doesn't add enough to the film because like he says in one of the scenes, he's like, oh, I'm not in the mood to sing a love song. I just had to bury a child. And then basically Bob Audio goes, toughen the fuck up. And then he goes, (laughs) (laughs) I think, well, um, I understand where you're coming from. But I think the thing that I picked up on uh, was that it's it's the story of the band. Like the band is called the Four Seasons, but in the long yes. run, they the band became like while they were still together. Even the band became Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. Mm-hmm. So the movie is the story of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. Mm-hmm. The Four Seasons disappear eventually, so all you have left is Frankie Valley. So and especially because some of the more popular songs, like you know, uh, can't take my eyes off of you. Uh, you know, my eyes adored you. Um, Those songs (laughs) came up. Those those songs came more. They became more popular, or some even weren't even written until after the band had disbanded. So I feel like the endings where I'm like, because if it's if it ends with Frankie and sort of, I you know, it almost feels like this film has two endings. The scene where he sings Mm. that like song by himself Frank yeah. Valley sings a song by himself with the big orchestral has the big yeah. Michael Blueblay Frank Sinatra moment yeah um, and then they do the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ending mm-hmm. and I feel like that's a double ending and I feel like that's where I'm if it is the evolution of Four Seasons in which it ends with becoming Frankie Valley, him mm-hmm. passing through all of his struggles and finding his own footing as a man because mm. he constantly was relying on on DeVito and and the dynamic of his band and his loyalty to the band um to the point where they hit their breaking point and then it leads to his redemption by himself that would be a good ending but because they then add tack on mm. the 20 years later ending yeah um i think is it that takes away with age makeup yes um, yeah. yeah it is with age makeup okay. but um on, some on of the them didn't look too bad. Some of them they look good. They look yeah, good. I was, yeah. Some of them, some of them some definitely look better than others, others in terms of the aging I mean, techniques. I don't think I could age you up like right. Now. I'm, I'm baby face. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can't do that. Um, I think when when it comes to double ending, it that that is a very good point. And yes, it does feel a bit. It, it feels a bit off in some ways. It feels like we needed but, to get uh, uh, one last four season mm, song in before yeah. the end of the film. I think that's that is definitely something that's come from the translation of stage to screen mm-hmm. because they actually in in the show they don't have a lot of that whole can't take my eyes off of you sort of moment they actually in the show the whole can't take my eyes off you song they play before they bury the child now i don't know if that's a whole them mixing up the chronology to make the film better or, be a what pacing the deal is, thing, yeah. or a pacing thing but in in the musical the way it happens or the way the events take place They all is... come together before... Like, when the... Ch- so, in the musical, when the, the child gets buried, mm-hmm. um, is the whole band still present or is it still... No, so they, they've disbanded at that point and the actual scene itself is quite literally Frankie Valley sitting on a bench in the cemetery on his own. Yeah. It's like... It's it li- the staging is literally just the bench and him sitting on it and he's singing arguably one of his best songs, which didn't make it into the movie, Fallen Angel. Mm. And it basically goes, he sings Fallen Angel, and then that song uh, transitions directly into Bob Cruz's speech at the Hall of Fame. So it goes into Ragdoll, mm-hmm. which is uh, that last song they sing, well, the, right. last one, the one that kind of leads into while they're singing in with the age makeup. Mm-hmm. And then you know how they do the whole spin, turn around. Yes. And yeah, so 
they kind of switch it up a bit where basically it goes Fallen Angel and then directly into Ragdoll mm-hmm. as all of them as old men. And then what happens is at the end of Ragdoll, they pretty much just cut it off. And you know how they have those fourth wall break monologue sort of things towards yeah. the end in that last song? Each of those monologues, it's one man at a time. They do their whole thing. But each of those monologues are like, it's it's a full soliloquy, essentially. And it's basically each of the uh, each of the band members wrapping up everything they need to and just saying, "This this is how it happened. This is how this is how I got through it. And this is how it's going now, and it all turned out okay." Because of the way, because you can't really translate that sort of thing into a film, because you can't really have just four men standing there with one of them just talking, yeah, and then them walking off the stage to get rid of the age makeup. Makeup, yeah. It, it's it's tough to do that in in screen. Mm. So I think that's just a way it's kind of just lost it in translation. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's my thing, though. It's like when you do these Broadway to musical adaptations, you don't necessarily have to do them uh, note for note because I don't think, um, at least myself, I might be in the minority here. When I see a Broadway to film adaptation, I don't want the same thing. Otherwise, I might as well mm. just watch a recording of the Jersey Boys live musical. Mm. Um, like, and that was always my gripe with things like, like Phantom of the Opera, where it's like, I really love the Broadway musical. There are live recordings of the Broadway musical I can watch. Mm. So when the film came around, I didn't want to see just, uh, that copy and pasted over there. I wanted to see them tell the story and I think they really fall short and also cast someone who can sing, um, as the Phantom. (laughs) Sorry, Jerry. Um, but I think that's my thing. I, I think from a narrative point of view, I think Eastwood differentiated enough that he could have potentially maybe not cut the ending out or maybe cut at least one of the endings out. Or, or like, like if you want the rock and roll roll Hall of Fame ending. Maybe just um, like slot another scene in between Can't Take My Eyes Off of You yeah. and the rock and roll thing. Yeah. Um, or maybe center the whole story around that night and then tell it all in past tense rather than oh, sequentially. So maybe yeah. start the the film with they're going to this thing, but they're not all together. Why aren't they all together? Mm. And then proceed to tell the story chronologically, maybe cutting back every now and again. So you do that sort of D-A-B-C story. Right, time, right? It is interesting. This is probably the first biopic I've ever seen that doesn't start in media res though. What do you... this, as in, like, it doesn't start at the end and then go back. And oh. I was like, oh, it was actually nice to see that for once. I, saw, yeah. I think to your point, Zach, with that ending with them, like, kind of the piece to camera, it goes back to that hype, the, the hybrid of, of musical theatre and, and film mm-hmm. in how, and we, we talked about earlier how yep. um, usually when we're doing sort of a piece to camera fourth wall break, we are tracking this person who's walking. You can kind of see them walking on stage. Mm. while they're doing that and or even like when it cuts to someone driving the, they wait for the VO to finish before their scene sort of starts so mm. I could see it all through that but I do agree that the film is a little overbloated with things and it's like it's stuff like that with the ending and how they could have maybe mixed the scenes up in that regard or you know the whole daughter arc which is very similar to something that happened straight out of Compton if you watch the director's cut there's like this whole story arc with I think Easy E's girlfriend before mm. he gets AIDS and this whole thing which is completely abolished and gone from the the theatrical cut and it kind of felt i think this is the only version of the film that exists that two hours 14 minutes but it did feel like an extended cut in ways Mm. where there was a lot of sort of ah if you're if you love these guys if you love the jersey boys Mm -hmm. you're going to get all this extra sort of information all these scenes to enjoy Mm. 
But, I mean, you said it yourself. This is much extended compared to the, the yeah. musical. Especially towards the... I mean, it's mostly the beginning scenes that are extended. Like, okay. some of them aren't even... Yeah. Like, like, like I was saying before, like, the jewelry heist scene, that's not even in the show. It's like, I love that scene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like some of the better scenes aren't actually even in the musical. Yeah. Whereas um, later on in the show, because it's like, all right, now we're going to churn through all these songs. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of the scenes are there. They're extended because it's a film. Yeah. But outside of that, they don't bring a whole lot more in terms of like historical context to the table. It's kind of just expanding on what already is there. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that if I was to take away that that's definitely some of the things I would like to remedy. And I think sometimes with Eastwood films, he does have a tendency to overbloat his, his content. Um, and that might just be discernible from the the cinema world he grew up in, which mm. was, you know, three a hour westerns. Yeah. yeah, with with half, you know, half yeah. an hour intermissions. So it's like... I think sometimes he, yeah, he can, he just overdoes it a bit too much. And I think this film also has some weird muddled narrative where it's like, for example, when the fallout's about to occur and everyone, and that whole, um, the show that they perform at where you think this is where the, uh, the Jersey boys are going to, uh, yes, the, yeah. the, the four seasons are going to break up. And they, they basically round off all the things that DeVito did wrong over the mm. last couple of years. And it's uh, sort of, I, I mean, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but again, that's just one of those things where it was from stage to screen <laughs> translation model, because that's actually that point where the dude walks in and says, Tommy DeVito owes me a bun- a heap of money. Yes. Like, that's exactly pretty much where it cuts off and goes into intermission in the show. Mm-hmm. And then it picks up again with that scene where they're back at the county fair in, what is it, mm-hmm. Illinois or something like that. Well, I, I have and, to yeah. ask you, Zach, before we move into our highlight scenes, mm-hmm. if, unless you have Jake, you have anything else you'd like to add? Mm-hmm. Um, I have to ask you, do you like when musical adaptations to screen are very close or do you prefer to see something a little bit different? Uh, it really does vary because I feel like in instances like Jersey Boys, I feel like it's been done well enough that it it can stand on its own. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at a film like or Cats, for example, mm-hmm. like that's very like they did hit it exactly. They basically remade the musical just on screen, mm-hmm. which... For cat, which in that case didn't work because the musical is literally just an anthology of songs, and then Taylor Swift goes flying up into a ball and dies. Well, at least well, we don't think she dies, but we all know she dies. I've um, been I've watched that film with people who literally only watch the film to watch her performance in it. <laughs> yeah, but exactly in like in cases like that, it doesn't work because mm-hmm. when people go to watch films, they a lot of the time they want to see they want to see a story, they want to see character yeah. development and stuff like that. And when it's just a list of songs, when it's basically an album that's taking place on screen, it doesn't work. But when you have a story, when you have that character development, like in Jersey Boys or to some extent Lame Miz, for example, mm-hmm. um, I don't know about Phantom because I haven't actually seen it myself. Oh boy. Um, but yeah, I feel like in that case, sometimes it, it works. Sometimes it works better than others. So like, I feel like Jersey Boys does it better than Lame Miz does, for I example. I do too. I agree. Um, I think Lame Miz is overbloated. And mm. confusing and really long, and yeah. doesn't. Uh, just I mean, that the, the musical's an epic. That's kind of just kind of how it works. And, and they write. I don't yeah. understand how you have millions and millions of dollars and you get Russell Crowe to. Sing yeah, it's it. an it's another name. They they just want big names. Yeah, but like there are there. Uh, but there I guess are so many triple have, threats out there yeah. nowadays too. Which is mm. that's my thing. Where it's like I really liked that they they I reckon Eastwood casted these four men solely off the fact of what they look like. Mm. 
if they bared resemblance enough, and then could they sing? He, they were his focal points, not names, because none of these people I've ever heard of before or recognised, mm-hmm. um, and they all could sing, really. Like, well, they could sing their roles perfectly. So yeah. the music in this is easily its strongest point because all the music sounds great. It almost sounds... Like, I actually remember when I was going through and, like, you know, adding all these songs to my playlists and that sort mm-hmm. of thing, I sometimes struggled to differentiate whether i was listening to the film soundtrack or the original the original album oh, just because nice. some like just because the voice the voice sometimes is just so so close together in mm. terms yeah, of the the only yeah, time i've ever heard on. remotely a biopic get relatively close to the sound the similar sound without modifying because i know bohemian rhapsody did that they modified it uh, mm. but solely off just the original voices is probably walk the line is the only one that got reasonably close to the original source. I think that's the charm of Walk the Line is how Joaquin has his own version of the song. But like someone could I've seen people be like it's better than than the Johnny Cash original. Yeah. Which you can make your argument for it. And maybe Rocket Man probably in the same conversation. Mm. I think some people like the Taron Edgerton covers more than they like the Elton John ones. Unlucky Elton John. <laughs> oh, he got his Oscar. He's doing all right. Yeah, get that after party. Jake, do you have anything to add? Uh, I pretty much just want to talk about one other thing before we do highlight scenes because um, in terms of who could have directed this, because it is sort of that thing of Eastwood trying to swoop this one up mm. and take it. So it, you know, it, could have been, it could have gone to Tom Hooper. Who knows? A little fun know. fact about Clint Eastwood's direction. Mm. He actually nearly got sued by the original right, uh, by the playwright. Okay. Some years ago, just because apparently there was some licensing issue. Oh, yeah. So good thing the film. Good thing the film was already released. <laughs> He's definitely a like good that. director for this because this is sort of the product mm. of his time too. You got to think he was a young man when That's this true. band came out. Yeah. Um, so he definitely was sort of he. If anyone, you need someone, and this is going to sound bad, but you need someone probably as old as Clint Eastwood. To, yeah. In a way, but I feel like... Look, I do agree with that, and I agree with the fact that... Um, Even though Mangold did was, really well with Walk the Line. There, so. was, a, uh, there was sort of a masculinity to to the, these hooligans, especially mm. towards the start, that I think was pretty good for uh, Clint to get, get onto. He loves being a manly man. But <laughs> I also manly kind man. of, at times, especially when there were... Because you look at... I mean, Rocket Man's a great example, and I, I, I do need to rewatch Rocket Man because mm. I wasn't very onto it when I first saw it. But there was sort of this over-fluctuating charm to it. And I know that's Elton John, mm. while Jersey Boys is a bit less charm to it, I suppose, other than the music. I actually think mm. that's really but, that's a result of Dexter Fletcher's um, mm. direction. I think he's got a really but, nice way of... Even, I don't know how much of a hand he had in Bohemian Rhapsody, but I reckon I could probably pick out the scenes that he did and the ones that Singer did yeah. quite well. But my point is, like, there are parts, not necessarily the singing parts, but there are parts when I felt his direction was a bit bland, and I'm I'm trying to disassociate that from like maybe, you know the color scheme we talked about uh, oh, off the yeah, shows like yeah. it's very washed out and you did point out Zach um, to me before we started recording that it does sort of get a bit more vibrant as yeah. we get closer to the 90s. Yeah, essentially, like once the when the movie first starts in like that 50s sort of era, it's it's pretty much black and white. Yeah, it's it's greeny. And then yeah, grace. But then once it gets towards the end, it's pretty much full of full of colour and pretty vibrant. Mm. And I, I don't know if that's more to do with, like, to symbolise <laughs> the band's rise to fame or if it's just to show time periods. I don't know. Could be but both. Could I be mean, both, yeah. I think it was definitely a time period thing, especially mm. now that you point out it does get more vibrant as we get from 50s to 90s. Mm. But um, I'm trying to disassociate those kind of decisions, which are mm. clever decisions, from just the fact that it some of the conversations and the way it was shot 
I was like, this is kind of bland, as in, I'm not really upset about it, but I'm curious if not another director, like a Dexter Fletcher, came in and may- really emphasised maybe on the musical part of it. Maybe it felt more like a fantasy. Right, this okay. didn't feel like a fantasy a lot, which is fine. But well, it's I'm not a fantasy. So. Yeah, that's true. I'm yeah. curious, though, what it would have looked like in that, but it's I th- I curiosity mean, I, more I than think- a critique. It's interesting you say it's not a fantasy because, yeah, these are all musical biopics, but it's sort of what you can do with a musical biopic now mm-hmm. because it's such a... The funny thing is, like like we've talked about on the show, Walk the Line, the reason why that film is... You've got to kind of disassociate it from everything else you've seen is because it was one of the first musical biopics mm-hmm. of at least the 21st century. Um, uh, and so a lot of the tropes that are in that film were actually established by that film. So everything mm. that followed it was all residual mm. of that. So in order to differentiate yourself um, in a musical biopic and really stand out as a positive thing other than nothing more than a C plus, B minus sort of film where it's all it is is just things like Bohemian Rhapsody, which are nothing more than a 5 out of 10. There's nothing technically wrong with it, but all it is is just, hey, look, as particularly like the last 20 minutes, which is just a replication yeah. of the AIDS concert... And I think, if, funny enough, when you look at things like the credits for this, where they did the Sherry sort of one shot down the street yeah, thing, yeah. Mm. that's an example of sort of like trying to differentiate yourself. And, sh- you know, we talked about Chazelle last week and, you know, you've got La La Land, mm. which takes, you know, those big one shot takes mm. and, he, and, he try, and he mixes that sort of fantasy musical thing, you know, like the bit where literally Gosling and Emma Stone are floating in the, you know, the planetarium. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's right, more yeah. what, you're right, that that last scene, that is a bit more stylized. And I think I'm curious what, if the whole movie was a bit more like that. Yeah, that's sort of what I mean, yeah. more Broadway. You know, bring mm. some of that more, f- like, more fantastic flair into, yeah. the, into the movie. Hmm. Could have, could have given what us... could have been? Yeah. <laughs> well, when <laughs> they remake exactly, it, yeah. Zach, you can just direct it. Oh, <laughs> perfect. There yeah. you go. I'll be right on it. Perfect, 25 perfect. years from now, they'll remake it. Because that's what happens, right? Les Mis has had, like, 14 <laughs> remakes. Something You'll like be that, on the I'm Universal sure. lot while Zeke works on your Anne Bonny film, and I work on my Frankenstein yeah. film. Oh. You know there's <laughs> never been an Anne Bonny film? This has been my, like, consistent thing. Like, you know, I was, like, looking at Pirates the other day, and it's like, she, she's literally, like served on another her and mary reed were both on the same trip it's like why why has there not been like a femme pirate movie <laughs> get amongst it anyway all right well let's move into highlight scenes highlight scenes do you have a highlight scene zach um i personally have always been my, my favorite two scenes from this movie have pretty much always been um uh actually let's probably say th- okay three favorite scenes um first one is the church scene Mm-hmm. When so it's Frankie Valley, Nick Mancy, and uh, some woman that you never see again. Some broad, yeah, some broad. <laughs> um, they break into the church, and that's pretty much one of the first times that you hear that kind of the four season sounds start to come mm-hmm. together because it's you know it's that nice deep bass with Nick Mancy. You got the high stuff with Frankie Valley. That that's always been a standout to me. Um, what I love about that scene too is how. You know, we when we see musical biopics, there's always sort of that struggle to get a hold of the 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 instrument. And yeah. I love that in this version, like we have these guys, they're breaking into a church. Yeah, they start to do the music. I kind of love that. Yeah. Um, then another one is the the final scene with the monologues. Mm. That's more so though because when I so the Broadway show is superior to the movie. Mm-hmm. Just gonna put that out there. Um, oh. but get wrecked. The um <laughs> the. Sorry, Clint. <laughs> yeah. Um, but 
kind of going back and rewatching those monologues that they had at the end during that final song. It's kind of like, uh, kind of sentimental, just in that you know, just you know, cast me back to when I first saw the show. So that's that's definitely been a highlight, mm. and also, um, Frankie Valley's kind of turn back towards not happiness, but like turn back to recovery with Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. Mm-hmm. That just that scene in the recording studio, which then trans um sorry, which then moves into the rooster tail. That's uh another big highlight for me because I just love that song. Yeah. That song's just fantastic. Mm. There we go. Yeah. Well, for me it's probably going to be that first yeah, Frankie Valley uh solo performance where the curtains get drawn back and the Ah uh, yeah. In the rooster tail. Yeah. yeah. Uh it's definitely gonna be it for me, I reckon. That was a very entertaining scene. Or anything with Christopher Walken in it. Just, <laughs> yes, yeah. He's just He's cool. good. I think one of my favourites with him especially was um after after there's that whole fake death thing that happens in Frankie's car. Yeah, he's like, what if- yeah, 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 and it's, yeah, and it's Christopher Walken and Tommy DeVito basically just telling off these two grown men like they're school children. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, take off your hat. <laughs> like that sort of thing. It's, uh, it's a pretty good scene. Good scene. That's right. great. Jack, over to you. Um, similar to Zach, I had three notable scenes. Um, I want to give a shout out to the scene when they're sort of in the back of the lane at the bowling, just for its blocking. Like I always oh, love, I always yeah. like when a when a scene finds like just an interesting place to take to take place. Yeah, essentially. And that, I mean, it's kind of you take it back to disconnected. It's it's like why I had you and um, James Mooney in the pool so often. It's because it just adds uh, an interesting yeah. sense of blocking to mm. the scene. And I like how they do it in the bowling when he's like jumping, he's dodging the balls yeah. and stuff, and he's like screaming. Um, so I love that stuff, and I love the date that Frankie and Mary go on early on. Uh, and it's yeah. one of those like, ooh, you know, like it's very that 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 scene has some of my favorite lines in the entire movie from it. Just stuff oh, like you so know, good. um, oh, what is it? I'm gonna be as big as Sinatra. Yeah, no, only if you stand <laughs> on a chair, like that sort of stuff. It's, <laughs> it's a shame they don't do too much with her following that opening scene. That's true. Um, like it is the Goodfellas she, of musicals. It really is, yeah. It's sort of, uh, unfortunately, yeah, female casting in this this musical isn't of the highest order. I don't know how it goes. But in I the feel music- like that's a musical performance trope thing as well. Like uh, the guys are very manly and the women are very womenly sort of thing. I uh, it really depends on the show. Yeah, I, I mean, it, older shows definitely. So mm. maybe I think Jersey Boys is kind of just coming off of that whole. It's that, also that the time it's set casting. in. Yeah. it's tough. Um, exactly because you know like I said I brought up Beautiful earlier and that's the Carol King story and that's got a lot of really like that's yeah. set around the 60s too what's that Greece and it's got really really strong yeah. female characters and really mm. kind of weak and wimpish male yeah. characters it's yeah. totally dependent on the musical or even yeah like uh, more recent stuff like I don't know what's, like Dear Evan Hansen or um, uh, The Book of Mormon Waitress, uh, shows like that. Yeah, exactly. It's like a lot of the time. Sometimes they even just like flip that whole thing on its head, where it's you know, the the guy is the weak one. Yeah, and yeah. It's totally mm. dependent on the, the musical. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, so um, yeah. they we were. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, and the other one I wanted to share was the the jewelry robbery and the oh, car. Yeah, the car yeah. hanging out. Like that was fun. That was yeah, good. yeah. The um the car on its two back wheels. Oh. He's trying to steer it, but the yeah. uh, whose car was it? It was Tommy's car. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Because I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure up until like halfway through the movie, I'm pretty sure Tommy is the only one that actually has owns a car. 
So oh. yeah, they literally <laughs> like try to drop this safe that weighs you know two tons into this yeah. ba- into the back of this know, awesome Corolla or whatever. Comically it is. stupid. Yeah, like, how it, did it they is, think they? It's ex- that's exactly what it them. is. And they just fly into we the drugstore window. We got this. Yeah. No worries. Then, well, Jersey Boys is currently out in wide release and on Netflix. On Netflix. Mm. Yeah. No worries. So Jake, Sorry? what is new in cinemas this week? So this week in cinemas and in uh, disclaimer once again that uh, these shows are pre-recorded. So. Subject to change. And it's funny because I have on here the new Mutants. I believe that just got delayed. Yeah, but so. like I, I read a thing uh, just as I was coming in here. Apparently, it's been delayed by like three decades or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like It was well, literally just a thing that says the new Mutants being released March 2058 or something <laughs> like that. I was like, whoa, okay. I think it's because this is like the fourth or fifth delay. And, and this yeah. one's uh, due to the coronavirus. And there's been a lot of films, like A Quiet Place Part Two is now being pushed. Bond I'm, sure the new James Bond, yeah. I'm pretty sure the new James Bond got yeah. pushed back a few Bond months pushed, as well. Yeah. Um, Fast Nine got pushed as well. So They're making a ninth one? Um, well, yeah, yeah, it's got John oh, Cena. They're making a million. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. Okay, I can get behind that. <laughs> you can't um, see him. So <laughs> def- with all of that in mind, definitely subject to change. And again, The New Mutants was going to come out in this next week, but is not. Uh, there are three other films, though, that I'm going to talk about. The Secret Garden, which is based on a classic children's novel, and sees a girl discovering a magical garden at her uncle's house in this family fantasy adventure starring Colin Firth. Ooh, and I don't, okay. yeah, I don't think he plays the little girl in this, but ah, you never know. Really? Uh, maybe not. Oh, we'll gave that, we'll that away. <laughs> if we go to that secret garden, can we actually watch movies and go in public and all that other stuff? <laughs> yeah, the secret garden kills you of all things. Uh, Hope Gap sees two-time Oscar-nominated screenwriter William Nicholson of Gladiator fame direct a relationship drama regarding a father telling his son that he plans to leave his mother. Ooh. Mm, that sounds a bit intense. I don't know about that. Um, and the last one, I'm going to probably butcher this name, La Belle Epoque. You could help me out here, Zach, actually. Uh, it's a French title. Uh, uh, probably be well, La Belle Epoque or something like thank that. Thank you, I thank know. you. Definitely closer than me. It convincing. I don't speak French. My girlfriend does. Uh, uh, so this one is... in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, you're on the Cinema Sideshow podcast. Uh, so this is a French comedy drama that sees a grouchy or cr- crouchy... I'm guessing Grouchy, 60-something Victor, offered an escape from his life. A new service offers a chance at something different. A high-end reenactment troupe uh, using theatre and reconstruction to let their clients, quote-unquote, travel to an era of their choice. And Victor chooses to relive the most important time of his life 40 years earlier to the week he met his wife. That kind of sounds like a weird sequel to yeah. Up. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, does, not, not sure how I feel about that. Yeah. I'm curious. It sounds like one of those like award-winning sort of... Like, it sounds like it's getting buzzed somewhere. But yeah. It could be s- the next Oscar-worthy film or something yeah, you like never, that. No could one, be the next na- Parasite. Nowadays, you never, you never know. Well, no worries. Well, none of those films are what we're watching next week on the show. <laughs> <laughs> but, Jake, what are we watching? So, next week on the show, we're watching Lady Bird. I hate California. I want to go to the East Coast. I want to go where culture is, like How New in the York. World did I race or at least snow. Connecticut or New Hampshire, where writers live in the world. Get into those schools anyway. Mom! You should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College and then to jail and then back to City College and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. Lady Bird, is that your given name? Yeah. Why is it in quotes? I gave it to myself. It's given to me by me. Lady Bird always says that she lives on the wrong side of the tracks, but I always thought that that was like a metaphor. But there are actual train tracks. Teenage girl Christine Lady Bird McPherson faces lots of ups and downs in her relationships during her senior year in high school. 
This film uh, was directed by Greta Gerwig. Greta Gerwig, our director's corner for episode 65 next week. Our first ever females director's corner. That's the one. Shows how good we are 65 weeks in. (laughs) This is the 13th director's corner. Yeah, 13th, yeah. So that's, yeah. Um, (laughs) I really like Greta Gerwig's work. I'm really looking forward to talking about this. Mm, it's going to be good. And we're bringing back special guest Perry Watson for the show. Hey. So there we go. We'll have a bit more information for you about that next week when she comes on. Zach, thank you so much for coming thank this you week. Thank you for coming on, man. Glad to come. And hopefully maybe be back. Absolutely. Oh, let's hope you are. We'll see what happens. I mean, we're all not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> all right. No Easy worries. peasy. Well, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And I was Zach. And we'll catch you next week with Ladybird. Tweet, tweet. <laughs>